What does historical fiction look like in the hands of Jennifer Egan? With this one, I really was circling a curiosity about New York during World War II, and that curiosity goes back a long way. The Pulitzer Prize-winning author will be here to talk about her new novel, Manhattan Beach. Is Silicon Valley getting in the way of liberal values? These technologies are dangerous for very specific reasons, which is that these companies shape our perception of reality. Franklin Foer will join us to talk about his new book, World Without Mind. Alexander Alter will tell us about the latest goings-on in the literary world, and we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Jennifer Egan joins us now. She is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of A Visit from the Goon Squad, as well as other novels, and is a journalist as well, and who has written for the New York Times Magazine, as well as for the book review. Jenny, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. So we are here to talk about your new novel, Manhattan Beach, which is just out now. Do you think of this book as a departure? I don't really, although I understand why people say that. I think I think I found a lot of my readers with A Visit from the Goon Squad, and I don't think any book could probably be more different from A Visit from the Goon Squad than Manhattan Beach. But those readers who have been kind enough to stick with me over several books know that I tend to take an entirely new direction each time and and ideally renounce a lot of the tools that I've used the last time in order to try something really new the next. So it in fact this hues to that pattern, the pattern of unpredictability. Yeah, and 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 it's not that I never cover the same ground again because I I wish I were that inventive, but usually between books there's a big shift. And so I I understand why it seems that way. All right. So for those who have not read Goon Squad, very briefly, describe that novel, and then we'll talk about Manhattan Beach. Okay. Well, Goon Squad is a very polyphonic story. It It has 13 chapters, and each one is about a different person written in a very different way. But they all combine to tell a story that is about, you know, aging and, and time and music, I would say. But it's, it's very fragmentary, and a lot of the big action takes place offstage. All right. So this book, which people are describing as a historical novel, as a kind of noir thriller, as a workplace novel, tell us about Manhattan Beach. Manhattan Beach follows three people, really. A young woman named Anna Kerrigan, who is 19 and working, working at the Brooklyn Navy Yard to help build and repair ships, as so many women were doing during the war when the men went off to fight. And then a, a gangster named Dexter Stiles, who runs a nightclub, and Anna's father, who was a kind of small-time racketeer helping out on the Irish waterfront and mysteriously disappears after making a, an agreement to work with Dexter Stiles, the gangster, in some capacity. All right. So how did you get from Coon Squad to Manhattan Beach? Well, actually, in exactly the same way that I get to any story that I tell, which is via an inclination toward a particular time and place. And for Goon Squad, there were multiple times and places, but a general impulse to write about music and time. With this one, I really was 
circling a curiosity about New York during World War II. And that curiosity goes back a long way because I really started researching this book in 2004. And thank goodness I did because a lot of the people that I interviewed, and there were scores of them over the, the decade following that, were in their 80s when we spoke and many of them have passed on. So I'm very lucky that I, I started thinking about this when I did. I think it was sort of the last possible moment. So two things. Well, first of all, what was the interest in New York during World War II? I don't fully understand that. I think it definitely has to do with 9-11. I mean, it was here at that time, and the feeling of New York having been invaded was a very bracing and shocking feeling. New York felt like a war zone for several months after that, and I think that led me to think about New York during the war because mm-hmm. that the city felt very threatened during that time and there were dim outs and there was worry about air raids and a sea invasion. And I think also in a broader sense, 9-11 made me, along with many other Americans, I think, think about the trajectory of American global power and wonder about the future of that trajectory, but also, in my case anyway, wonder about the past of it, the origin of it, which really was World War II, from which we emerged relatively unscathed when you compare us to other countries like Russia, for example, or the Soviet Union, as it was then, unscathed and incredibly strong. So you also mentioned that you did interviews for this book, and I'm curious about, you know, that approach, because obviously many writers do do a lot of research novelists. Not all of them do interviews, and I'm curious to what extent you think your experience as a journalist informs your fiction writing. I think that it's been crucial the whole way along, but never more so than with this book. I mean, I'm not sure I could have written this book if I didn't have experience as a journalist, simply because without coming at the period from every possible angle, which I think I learned how to do as a journalist, I just simply couldn't have felt familiar enough with it and in it to move around in the way that I need to to be comfortable as a journalist. Interviews with live people are just essential, and they have been all the way through with my fiction. You know, for example, with The Keep, which is a, a lot of it takes place in a prison, I did a lot of reading about prisons, but it was only when I spent a day in a high-security prison with a warden that all of that reading was animated. So I've really learned that, you know, archival research is great, but it's somehow talking with people not only adds an enormous dimension, but brings to life all of the other research. And there's another category of research that I luxuriated in while working on this book, which is what I would sort of call between an interview and archival research, and that is letters and oral histories, Mm -hmm. where I felt I was really hearing the voices of living people, and yet they were no longer alive. And I became fascinated by that kind of recording of of a human life in a way that I never have been up until now. I I recognize the power and the importance of taking down people's stories in a very raw way and and the urgent importance of doing that when we can. So when you call up someone to interview them who's, you know, not an expert source, but sort of telling their own story, and you do that as a journalist, you know, you say, hi, I'm calling for the New York Times and blah, blah, blah. When you call them up and you say, I'm researching a novel, is the response different? and, And are people open to talking to you? 
Well, first of all, I was rarely calling anyone. I was usually in their presence. Mm -hmm. I would find a way to see them. Like, for example, when I went to the Miami Book Fair in 2006, I actually drove to some retirement communities. I was promoting the keep at the book fair, but I was researching this book with elderly ladies who were, were all too eager to talk to me. What I found was that generally people were interested at the at the later point in their lives to contribute to the process of recording their experience. They understood the importance of it. And because I was involved in an oral history project, I was there more as a recorder than as a novelist. I, I think they would have taken that seriously, but in fact, we were all working on something that mattered even more, which was contributing to the historical record with their stories. So you mentioned earlier this novel follows three characters. Um, this research all, I'm assuming, went into the not only the, the, these characters, but the workplaces and the environs that each of them inhabit. Can you just talk a little bit about each of those three characters, starting with Anna Kerrigan? Sure. So Anna works at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and that is uh, a fascinating place with a tremendous amount of history going back to the 18th century. And so I immersed myself in the wartime period at the Navy Yard, reading lots of copies of The Shipworker and really trying to get a sense of the various complex activities taking place at a, at a Navy Yard that, in fact, was the largest builder and repairer of Allied ships during World War II. It repaired some 5,000 Allied ships and employed about 70,000 people at its height, of which about 5,000 were women. So that was one gigantic locus of of activity and knowledge that I needed to understand. Through learning about that, I learned that civilian divers were one component of ship repair. And in fact, diving was a huge thing in New York during World War II, in part because of the Normandy, which was a, a French ship that capsized on a pier in 1941, and it, and there was even a thought that it had been sabotaged, that Germans had bombed it. In fact, it was simply, it caught fire, and so much water was poured into it that it, it, it the ship became destabilized and tipped over. But there was the hope of writing the ship, repairing it, and using it as a, as a cargo ship or a troop ship. And so divers were a huge part of that process because the ship was essentially underwater. So lots and lots of divers flocked to that pier in Manhattan, and it became a training center for civilian divers as well. I got very involved in deep-sea diving in the equipment of that time, and I should add that I have never even scuba-dived. So when I say involved, (laughs) it was a pretty bookish involvement, although it it became visceral, too, because I spoke to lots of divers, including one who dived during World War II in the harbor at Cherbourg, clearing out basically concrete and other things that the Germans had exploded to try to make the port unusable. So I got very involved with a group of army divers and talked a lot with them about the experience of diving. And many of them had worn the old Mark V equipment that I was writing about. Another area of research and another sort of work that I I got interested in, and and in fact really couldn't avoid if I was going to be looking at the waterfront, was the mob. (laughs) You know, gangsters and corruption were absolutely inherent in waterfront life in New York. And that was really a delight to me because I'm a, a cop's granddaughter 
and I love writing about crime. That was also a really fun thing to research and, and learn about. And that was through the character of Eddie. Through Eddie and also Dexter Stiles, who's, who's a gangster of, of another sort mm-hmm. and not involved in the waterfront per se. He's part of the Italian mob. The Italian mob was, in fact, involved in the waterfront, but a different part, more the Brooklyn waterfront. Eddie is involved in the Irish waterfront, now immortalized by the movie On the Waterfront, which rose directly from a newspaper expose on the the corruption of the Irish waterfront in the uh, it was actually after the war that it was all finally exposed in the 50s. You mentioned that you try to challenge yourself doing something different with each book. What was the greatest challenge, the hardest thing about writing Manhattan Beach? Well, first of all, I had gotten pretty reliant on fragmentation. I was praised for it and and you know given lots of nice positive reinforcement about it. But the truth is that there, in a certain way, it's, it's easier to tell a story in fragments than, than straight up. Or I guess what I should say is that it, one avoids certain necessities that are actually very hard to pull off, like gathering momentum, pulling a story together, but really most of all, sustaining and actually building tension through a long narrative that is moving in a fairly straightforward way. So that was a, a challenge to, that it was fun to revisit. I had, it's not like I'd never written a book in that way, but it had been a while. I think the hardest thing for sure for me, though, was having to write outside of my lifetime because I, my entry point to fiction is time and place. And while I avoid my life studiously, and vehemently, just because I find it boring, <laughs> uh, and never write about people I know, I do rely very heavily on times and places that I'm familiar with, sort of atmospheres, if you will. So this was a time and a place that I didn't experience. And so that was a huge challenge, because since I don't know what story I will be telling or who will be in it exactly, and I, I just sort of start writing and see what hap- happens... It was very hard to start without having the knowledge of the time and place I was writing about, and particularly these very arcane areas of of work, Mm -hmm. as we discussed. So I felt really paralyzed for a while. I, I, I wanted to write about this, but I didn't know enough to write, but I also didn't know what I needed to know. So it was a difficult kind of a little bit of a a sort of stumbling start that I had to work through by moving back and forth between research and writing. And that was really difficult. And I felt very stymied in the sense that even when I began to know enough to, to sort of hack my way through it, I still felt like I wasn't really doing what I do as a writer for a while. And, and I felt like, well, okay, I'm sort of getting by here, but that's not good enough. I mean, mm-hmm. this, this has to be better than that. This has to be a fun book to read. And so it was really a thrill when I felt like I crossed over and, and finally began to just operate in that environment as I would in any environment and, and write the way I like to write. You said you started the book, or the genesis of the book was in 2004. Was part of that paralysis just taking a break from it, putting it down, working on other things, and then coming back to it? You know, I didn't actually start to write a word until 2012. So all I was doing was research Mm -hmm. amidst writing the keep 
and writing A Visit from the Goon Squad. You know, in a way, the experience of writing The Keep helped me with this because that is a gothic thriller that takes place in a, in a realm that doesn't exist in the real world. So it, it was sort of a world I had to invent and uh, that, that any gothic writer invents. And so I think it was helpful to to remember that I, you know, that I could write about a time and a place that I hadn't experienced. And it I think it gave me a clue about looking for some sort of stylistic approach to the period. And so I was very reliant on noir movies mm-hmm. as a way of helping me imagine a kind of vocabulary, if you will both for the look of of what I was writing about and even the sound of it in terms of dialogue and that sort of thing. So bringing a certain stylization in, as well as, of course, a lot of verisimilitude with all this research, that was a really fun development as I worked. Well, now you've got to tell us a couple of those movies. Well, some of the ones that I really enjoyed are not the the classics, but there's one called uh, Naked City, mm-hmm. written by Mark Hellinger, who was a journalist, and that is that is just a very stylish, self conscious noir that I that I actually return to again and again because it has a glorious depiction of New York. It, it was actually uh, made in the late 40s, and there are still horses on the street, which is kind of amazing in the outer boroughs. There's a great scene on a bridge with a, you know, a criminal climbing up one of the, the stays of the bridge and the police shooting. It, it's a really wonderful one. We're talking about the book right now in terms of, of noir, and earlier we were talking about it in terms of historical fiction. I mean, do you think of this as sort of straight up one kind of genre or in its, in its way also a kind of genre-bending novel? I never like to do just one thing if I can avoid it. Mm-hmm. My favorite is to try to do something and its opposite at the same time. So although I, I wasn't really thinking about it this way as I did it, I think it's a bit of a mashup. And in that way, it's kind of like Goon Squad, which brings together lots of different styles and approaches. Certainly, there's a noir element here. I mean, there are gangsters. There are, there are A lot of it takes place at night. It's very urban. I mean, those are essential noir elements. But also, you know, it's a it's a sea novel. I mean, that's something I didn't get mentioned before. But in terms of the workplace, I got deeply involved with the Merchant Marine, which is a fascinating thing to look at because it lost proportionately more men than any other branch of the armed services during World War II. It was unbelievably dangerous work to be sailing on cargo ships trying to bring war material all over the world. And I got deeply involved with that, visited a Liberty ship many times, interviewed remarkable men who sailed during the war, and read with joy a tremendous number of sea stories and stories of survival at sea. And so it, it, it you know, th- that is kind of a genre unto itself yeah. uh, with some uh, incredible masterpieces in it, like Moby Dick and others. That is one component of this book for sure. And so, you know, it, it, there's a kind of stylization of the noir, but also I, I, at a certain point I thought, you know, I'm writing an old fashioned adventure story on some level. You know, I, I was thinking about books like Treasure Island, Mutiny on the Bounty. I mean, big stories full of danger and crime and survival and and 
death, and it was really fun after leaving so much of the action off stage in Goon Squad to just get in there and do it right on the page. So as long as we're talking about other stories, you said a great thing in By the Book this week, which was that you have to read the kind of the novel that or the book that you're hungry for, and that if you pick up something and it's kind of not what you're hungry for, it doesn't work. I love that idea. Yeah. And so I have to ask, what are you reading right now? Well, I'm still really into Trollope, (laughs) which I'm finding to be a a, a nice counterpart to the Trump moment in our history, because Trollope is really all about money and power. That's what motivates people in his novels. And it's it couldn't be more overt. I mean, characters are introduced with a price on their heads, which is how much they have a year. (laughs) So I'm finding it to be far enough from our time that I don't just feel gagged on, mm-hmm. on you know, the, the, the difficulties of our present moment, but and yet utterly reflective of uh, the same mentality of, you know, power and money being paramount. And, and I guess on top of that, somewhat reassuring, because I think there's, I, I often have a feeling, I think we all do, that this is the worst it's ever been. You know, we We've never, you know, we've never been more motivated by greed and corruption and cynicism. But in fact, reading Trollope makes me realize things were relatively <laughs> the same. It's, it's always been terrible. <laughs> things are relatively the same in the mid nineteenth century. I mean, I really do find it reassuring to realize that I, I think people are people, and we have this. I have a terror that we're transforming into something worse, something uglier. And and technology might be part of that. But every time I really look deeply at that question, I come back thinking, no, we are pe- people are people and we're good at solving problems in the end. And it gives me a lot of faith in our future. All right. Let's one final question. Also, on a happy note, the Nobel Prize for Literature was just announced and it's uh, Kazuo Shiguro. And I'm curious if you're a fan and if you have a favorite novel of his. Um, absolutely. I love his work, and I think he's a great choice. He's tried lots of different things, which I really love. I think my favorite is The Floating World, which was before The Remains of the Day, which I think made him so famous, but has some of the same themes in it. I love the fact that he looks very closely at something small and yet finds the the ways in which it opens out directly into gigantic questions of the, the, the surrounding culture and, and even the, the big epic questions of, of being human. He, he's a remarkable writer, and I think he's a great choice. High praise coming from another remarkable writer. Jenny, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Jennifer Egan's latest book is Manhattan Beach. Joining us now is Franklin Foer. His new book is called World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. Frank, thanks for being here. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. So I remember the last time I saw you was in Miami at the Miami Book Fair. You were there to celebrate another book, a book that you edited. Let's just set the scene a little bit. What was that book? That book was an anthology of essays published over the course of the New Republic magazine's 100-year history. And that book was a complete passion project for me because I've been a fanatical 
reader of the magazine in addition to being its editor. And so it sent me deep into the archives. And I spent a, long, a lot of time when I was putting out that book kind of pondering the nature of the essay, the nature of journalism, how to create a voice in a, in a style that was distinctive from everything else that's out there. And it was interesting. So you were there with Hannah Rosen and Margaret Talbot, both former writers for the magazine. And we went out to dinner on a Saturday night celebrating everything. What happened the next week? I ask because it is a kind of the backdrop to this book, World Without Mind. (laughs) That's right. Well, I actually had an incredible sense of foreboding about what was going to happen to me. And I spent a good chunk of that weekend with Hannah and Margaret talking about what I was going to do, because I, the owner of the magazine was a guy called Chris Hughes, who at that time was 30 years old, fantastically wealthy. He'd been Mark Zuckerberg's roommate in college, and he'd come to the magazine with incredibly idealistic hopes for how we could navigate our way into the digital future, and it just hadn't worked out well. He suddenly wanted to have us become a different sort of institution. I think he wanted to prove himself to his friends in the tech industry, and he wanted us to produce revenue incredibly quickly. And so we lived this compressed slice of media history where we were going from being the magazine that I tried to canonize in that anthology to becoming something that was rushing headfirst into the world of social media and and digital journalism in a way that I I felt was transforming the character of the magazine into something that was unrecognizable as it related to the, the archive that I'd just been buried into. And so Hannah and Margaret and I were, were, were talking about what to do. And at that stage, I, something I, don't, I haven't actually spoken about before, but I, was, I knew the writing. I, I could see the writing on the wall. I knew I was doomed. And I began to think about what I might want to do next. I didn't think that I was going to be resigning in protest. I didn't think that there was somebody who had already been hired to replace me, who was lunching around New York offering people jobs. I, I couldn't foresee everything that was going to happen, but I, I knew we were headed to an unhappy ending. And that unhappy ending was, I expect, the beginning of this book, World Without Mind. Yeah, completely. I uh, felt a lot of anger over <laughs> what had happened at the New Republic. And this book is a critique of Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and the kind of the, the, the world that we're headed into where these companies play such a big domineering role. But it's also a defense. And I tried to write the book as a defense of the type of values that I kind of saw buried in the archives of the New Republic, and, but also a defense of a certain intellectual style. And when I say that, I don't just mean an intellectual style as practiced by high-minded magazine editors, but also by readers, and by citizens. And that a life that involves contemplation, being in control of your own attention in such a sufficient sort of way that you can actually turn over ideas for yourself. I saw that world being threatened, and I felt like I needed to diagnose the problem and write a bit of a manifesto for those things that I saw perishing. Was it a process to get from this moment of, okay, this horrible thing has happened to me personally, to this magazine that I am closely aligned with, and to sort of the, the the professional and intellectual world that I belong to, to get it to this book, which is personal, but also a kind of 
bigger polemic and, and history and, and intellectual history in certain ways of computer science. These, these were actually subjects that I was thinking about even before things busted up at the New Republic. I had been active in the Authors Guild, and there'd been that big dispute between Hachette and Amazon over the pricing of ebooks. And I'd written about Amazon even before the New Republic became an issue. And so, but really what I did was I, I tried to take my anger and intellectualize the problem and, and try to think it through in a way that was both emotional, but, but also one that you say is historical and analytical. And I tried to strike that balance that I think we all try to strike, which is between feeling a sense of moral fervor, but also the detachment that's necessary to be able to analyze the world as it is. What is the argument that you're making in the book? That there are these companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple, and they've achieved this outsized role in our economy, in our democracy, and in our lives. And we're in the course of going through a transformation as a species. And it's something that the CEOs of these companies talk about quite explicitly, about how they want to lead us to a new vision of human life, to a new stage of human evolution, where we merge with machines and our values are transformed. And they view this process of transformation as an extremely positive thing. Mm-hmm. And there's, there is so much good in their creations. I mean, I think that, that, that Google is one of the most remarkable marvels of human ingenuity. The iPhone is incredible. Facebook can serve very useful purposes. There is liberating, emancipatory potential in these technologies. But as we go through this transformation where we increasingly merge with machines and machines that perform intellectual functions, my concern is that we'll wake up 50 years from now and we'll be transformed in ways that we we could have anticipated Mm -hmm. and we were indifferent to just simply because we drifted into a future as opposed to creating a thoughtful architecture for what we want to become. What gets lost? I don't know if you, um, this is a personal question, Pamela, but I don't know if you sleep with your iPhone, but I, <laughs> I, I sleep with my iPhone from time to time. And I, it's something I've, I, I actively, I think I've tried to resist and purge from my life, but so many people sleep is with Is your wife's iPhone. iPhone in the bed too? Now you're getting too personal, but, um, <laughs> um, but I think I shudder to think about how many times I check my phone over the course of a day, and the phone is engineered to addict. It's engineered to constantly hijack our attention and to lead us to whatever is notifying us. Our phone's constantly buzzing, and the same is true with Facebook. These are technologies that are reverse engineered based on data, based on this intimate portrait of the inside of our heads to addict us, to lead us to a different place. And so I worry that that addiction, the way that our attention is always being distracted, will destroy the possibilities for contemplation. Mm -hmm. I worry that once we lose privacy, which is something that just disappears in all these incredibly small, imperceptible increments, we'll lose the space to be people who think new subversive, original thoughts that will start to bend all of our thinking to please our audience. And we'll become flattened as thinkers, flattened as individuals. So this is all on the personal level. What about on a societal level? Are technology and democracy at odds in some way? Are they necessarily at odds in some ways? And if so, in what ways? 
Well, I don't think that technology is necessarily at odds with democracy. I think that technology can do a lot to further democracy. But these technologies are dangerous for very specific reasons, which is that these companies shape our perception of reality, that if we want to access knowledge, Google is the first place that we that most people tend to go. If you want to consume news, Facebook increasingly plays this overwhelming part in that if you want to publish a book, Amazon is the primary marketplace for selling that book. And historically, we've worried that concentrations of private economic power, especially in the realm of communication and ideas, are inherently dangerous for democracy. And I think Facebook is the best example of this and the one that we're most awakened to at the present moment because of its role in the 2016 election. And I, and I think we could look at this narrowly and say, all right, so Facebook was manipulated by Russians. But I think if we step back and we look at Facebook more generally, we can see how you know, Facebook creates these feedback loops where it gives us what we want. Mm-hmm. And that's just been intellectually incapacitating. By living in the so-called filter bubbles created by Facebook, we've just become weakened and susceptible to fake news, propaganda, demagogic appeals. And it's easier to see on the right because it's so grotesque and graphic so much of the time. But it's also true on the left where, you you know, I notice with Russia that there are a lot of conspiracy theorists who've managed to flourish in a way that I don't think would have been possible in a non-Facebook universe. It's interesting because people talk about giving people what they want, you know, and they talk about the kind of degrading, dumbing down of uh, results of that strategy, you know, in terms of kitten videos. But you're talking about much more meaningful and harmful results. Do you think that you know, the, Jonathan Taplin wrote a book uh, that came out earlier this year called Move Fast and Break Things, in which he characterized these companies, the ones you're talking about, Facebook, Amazon, Google, Apple, as monopolies. Do you think that they are monopolies? I do. I think that our definition of what constitutes a monopoly has narrowed over time. I think that our political rhetoric doesn't really have much space for talking about monopoly, even though it was once a pretty ubiquitous part of the way that Americans talked about politics. But I'm optimistic that monopoly is on the cusp of returning as a subject, that you've got the Democratic Party that's searching for a way to tap into all the populist anger that exists and try to lead it in a way that's actually good for the country. And so you see the Democratic Party and even fairly centrist figures within the Democratic Party starting to pick up the banner of anti-monopoly. One other question, also political, is is big tech fundamentally libertarian? Does it have to be libertarian? On its surface, it's libertarian. But I spent a lot of time watching YouTube videos of Zuckerberg and Larry Page and the other so-called titans of tech. And I kind of came to the conclusion that they were the opposite of libertarian, that yeah, they probably all dislike government regulation. But if libertarians celebrate the solitary, heroic individual, the ideal of the tech companies is the collective. It's social media. It's collaboration. It's crowdsourcing. It's the network. It's everybody lumped into one bundle. And it's that urge to make everything one and whole that I think makes these companies so insensitive to individuals and individuality. 
Well, I'm going to reduce that to 140 characters and tweet it out right now. (laughs) (laughs) You do that. Thank you. (laughs) Frank, so much more we could talk about. The book is, again, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech by Franklin Foer. It is reviewed this week in the book review. Frank, thanks again. Thank you so much. Alexander Alter joins us now, and it is with exciting news. Hi, Alexander. Hi, Pamela. Let's talk about the Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize, the biggest literary award in many people's eyes of the year. I cover it every year, and I don't think I've ever been as excited. I almost whooped, except my children were still asleep at 7 in the morning because it went to Kazuo Ishiguro, who's one of my favorite authors. And often I'm scrambling to sort of Google somebody and see, you know, who's Herta Mueller, who's Svetlana Aleksevich. And this time I was very familiar with his work. His seven novels are are some of my favorite books. And I think, you know, this was a interesting choice coming off of a year where they chose Bob Dylan last year, and a lot of people thought that was a— radical and subversive choice. And a lot of people thought he didn't, you know, deserve to win a prize for literature when he's a songwriter. So to go back to a novelist and somebody who writes very accessible and commercially successful fiction. So he's both, you know, beloved by critics. He's won the Man Booker Prize, but he's also popular with readers. And I think that's not a choice that the Academy often makes. I mean, they're often with these awards trying to highlight an underappreciated writer or somebody who has a political statement to make. They want to shed light on a corner of the world that hasn't got enough attention. And so this is one of those prizes. It sort of reminded me of the year when Alice Munro won in 2013. Everyone felt like, okay, this is a, this is, we're looking at the work on the page and the effect that the books have had. So. And you had the great fortune of profiling. I did, yes. I think maybe that also added to my excitement. I got to spend some time with him in the village where he has a country house in Chipping Candon. I went to talk to him about The Buried Giant, which was his most recent novel. and was a really strange kind of departure for him. It's a fantasy novel. There are ogres and dragons and knights. But it, in, in a way, it's very much in keeping with all of his other work in that it deals with the fallibility of memory, the issue of mortality, and just sort of collective and individual memory and how we sort of forget traumatic things in the past and have to move on. And so one other thing that was interesting about that book was that it was third person. He's very sort of committed to his first person style. I think that's one of the things that stands out about his prose. He's very got this very spare, elliptical, idiosyncratic style where you have this first-person narrator like the butler in Remains of the Day or mm-hmm. or the girl in uh, Never Let Me Go, which is a boarding school in England. The, the characters know less about themselves than the reader at a certain point. Mm-hmm. They're kind of out of touch with their feelings and they repress a lot. And a lot of it, a lot of the emotional resonance, I think, comes from the subtext. And as a reader, you are sort of filling in the gaps in a way. And I think that's a, a really interesting thing that he does that has made his work stand out. It's one of those great choices where many people will have already read some of exactly. the books and now they'll be going back to the ones they didn't read. And then, as you said, he is relatively accessible as a novelist. And so hopefully it'll really bring in new readers as well. Yeah. And to play, you know, devil's advocate, of course, there's always grumbles anytime there's an award of this significance, people talk about who was overlooked. I mean, one thing that people noted was, 
you know, this is another man winning. There have only been 14 literature laureates who have been women out of 114. Mm -hmm. So some people were grumbling about that. And for some people, the fact that he is so well-known and commercially successful was a missed opportunity because, again, they see the prize sometimes as a way to highlight an author who might be underappreciated or not as well-known in certain corners. So some people they were got Bob Dylan for that. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's certainly like it will elevate you know, his entire body of work. Like All right. Well, to, to just move on for a moment from the work itself, let's talk about the man. What was yes. he like? He is incredibly charming, generous with his time, and sort of, you know, self-effacing. It was funny. When we sat down to talk about his book, he seemed like he wanted to talk about anything else. He went on and on about little, you know, various things from history. He was talking about the war in Chechnya, various conflicts around the world. And finally, I had to kind of pin him down. And I realized that everything he'd been saying was, of course, related to this fantasy novel that he'd written. Mm -hmm. He was just sort of talking about it in a circuitous way. It was all he, metaphor. It was all metaphor. You know, he lives in London and spends time in the, in the country and seems to be close with a coterie of writers there and, and, and sort of sociable. We did talk a, a little bit about you know, the works that have influenced him. And one thing that's interesting is he's very, he switches genres a lot. He's kind of a literary iconoclast. He, a lot of his books, you know, from book to book, he'll do something that's sort of inspired by Westerns or inspired by science fiction or or fantasy or detective fiction. And so I think he's an omnivore. He said with The Buried Giant, he was actually thinking of some samurai films that he enjoys and of Westerns, you know, those things sort of relate, even though it was a fantasy novel. So there is a whole array of influences that sort of shape his work. As a longtime reader of his novels, what surprised you most in meeting him? I suppose, you know, this is funny, it doesn't have to do with his work so much, but a lot of his narrators are these kind of emotionally repressed men and women who seem out of touch with with their own feelings. And when I met him, he was with his wife, Lorna, who is this incredibly outgoing, gregarious, warm woman. And they had such a funny, you know, nice relationship. We had lunch and Lorna was teasing him and she's his first reader. She does not hold back as a critic of his work and she teases him a lot. And at one point, I think she said something about how you're not a great prose stylist. It's not about the sentences with you. It's about the plots and the characters. And I really thought like, wow, this is a man who won the Booker Prize <laughs> and you're telling him he's not such a good stylist. So it was interesting to see that, you know, that kind of relationship. And I think she's a really important reader of his work and an early influence on his work. She gets to see it before anyone else. And she tells him when she thinks no one else should ever see it. <laughs> one last question. What's your favorite Ishiguro novel? I would have to say Never Let Me Go just destroyed me when I read it. And it's hard to talk about because there's a twist that's really significant. I think the first one that I really loved was Remains of the Day. And uh, I really did love The Buried Giant. And I read it twice. The first time I felt like I was missing a lot. And it turns out I was. The second time I read it, I felt like it really came together. So, All right, Alexander, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Joining us now, Greg Coles, John Williams, and Jen Salai to talk about what we're reading. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hey, Hello. Pamela. All right. Let's start with Greg. What have you got there? Well, we've talked a lot on this show about why we read certain books, the obit read or the, you know, our kids are reading it for school read. Um, one thing that I we— think you're the only one does that does the, <laughs> our kids are reading it for school read. But, but do go on. One thing that we have not talked about— in our jobs, especially, we're susceptible to reading books because we have a personal connection to the author in some way. And, and so I've got two books that I read this week 
for that reason. One of them, um, I don't actually know the author, but he lives in my town and he knows a neighbor of mine who passed his book along and I tore through it. It doesn't come out until April, so I don't know if I should name it it or the author now. And I don't know if we'll review it. It's a, a fairly standard thriller, but I every now and then will tear through a standard thriller with great pleasure. But, <laughs> you know, I, I like reading thrillers, um, well-plotted, short chapters, um, that that kind of thing. You know, it's funny because Radhika and I went to a luncheon last week and one of the books was a standard thriller. Yeah. And we both left the lunch sort of pretty excited and <laughs> ended up both reading it this past week, also a book coming out next spring. Uh, yeah. You know, so may, may, so no maybe, judgment. maybe I will go ahead and, and name this book with no promise that, that we'll review it or not. Uh, it's a book <laughs> called Warning Light. The author's name is David Ricciardi. That's R-I-C-C-I-A-R-D-I. And he self-published it apparently several years ago, and it did well enough for, you know, somebody took notice of it, and it's now going to be published by Berkeley Press, Berkeley Publishers, in April. It's about a CIA analyst who is pressed into service as a as an agent as a you know field operative for for a mission and the mission goes badly and he has to kind of think on his feet all along and it becomes one long chase scene and it's uh, entertaining and it takes you to foreign countries and it's you know it's a well done example of of the genre the other book that I'm reading is completely different from that and I'm reading it because it's a co-written memoir, a ghost-written memoir, by a professional bird watcher from Austin, Texas, named Victor Emanuel. I'm reading it because I know and I'm friends with the ghostwriter who occasionally reviews for us. Her name is S. Kirk Walsh. The name of the book is One More Warbler, A Life with Birds. <laughs> and <laughs> um, Victor Emanuel, who must be in his late 80s or even 90s by now, has been a well-known bird watcher for 50 years or more. Part of the charm of this book is that he started hanging out with very literary nature lovers, um, including Peter Matheson, William Styron's wife, Rose Styron. Um, so there's a, a section in here where uh, the three of them, Rose and Peter Matheson and Victor Emanuel, are all traveling to Chile in 1998 on the search for for the diatomid sandpiper plover, the legendary <laughs> diatomid sandpiper Another plover. Another day goes by that I don't think about that bird. <laughs> so uh, th those are the books that I'm reading now. John, how about you? I've got two books in front of me too, and they're also very different from each other. Um, the first is just a novel that's been on my shelf for a long time that I've been meaning to read, which is Charles Jackson's The Lost Weekend, which was the inspiration for the Billy Wilder movie, which I've never seen. And I'm about halfway through the novel, which is terrific. It's uh, about a guy in New York City around wartime who is just badly in need of a fix. He's an alcoholic and his brother goes away for the weekend and he, you know, spends his time in various states of drunkenness and, and talking to various people at bars. What's great about it is that, you know, a lot of times when people write about alcoholism or drug addiction, there's a kind, they try to sort of match the state of mind with this hallucinogenic or sort of, you know, blurry style. And this is a very straightforward, he's a really good writer, but it's just, it's very clinical and sort of psychologically clear. So he's writing very clearly about this state that's very woozy. And so as he walks down the block looking for a bottle and he can barely keep himself upright, we're just sort of 
were there step by step in a very in a very clear way and it's really really good so hopefully i'll finish that in the next next couple of days the other thing i'm reading is tanahasi coates's new book somewhat new it's a collection of pieces from the atlantic over the past eight or nine years, along with some new introductory mini essays that he wrote for them called We Were Eight Years in Power, An American Tragedy. They include his famous piece for The Atlantic about the case for reparations as a way to make up for uh, historical racism in this country. It includes this piece about Donald Trump and the role that racism may have played in his election. It's good. I'm going to finish it this week, and I'll probably talk a little bit more about both these books next week. But I'm enjoying it, and I actually, uh, you know, he's provocative. And I think that uh, one thing I find frustrating is that people tend to sort of, there's a little bit of an aura of like, you, the conservative side tends to just like say that he has no point, which is, I think is crazy. But then there's also this kind of just people taking every word he says as gospel when I think that's not really his project. I mean, he's, he is a provocateur, and I think it's useful to kind of push back a little bit in some places and argue with him. And he's, you know, he's good at that himself. So why not kind of make that part of the, part of the read? So Jen, oh my goodness, you have our favorite, still reading our favorite person. Still reading our favorite person. How did he not win the Nobel today? (laughs) Funny, I don't think I saw him on Ladbroke's list. Um, (laughs) Our our podcast did not elevate him there. No, I mean, so in any (laughs) case. But let's say that we are getting many, many very kind, enthusiastic Grateful listeners who are emailing to talk about their own Emmanuel career. Oh, you gave it away. Experiences. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this would be a blind item. Um, so, in any case, so I'm almost finished with this book. and Which one is it? This is My Life as a Russian Novel. And this is the one where I talked about it last week. It starts off where he wants to make this documentary. I, I, I think it's a TV documentary, actually, about mm-hmm. this Hungarian who was imprisoned during or right after World War II and kept in a Russian psychiatric hospital for more than 50 years. And Mm. so I thought, okay, well, this seems to be a story partly about that and then also partly about his own family history because his mother's father was Georgian. And so it's about what happened to his own grandfather who disappeared after the war, who during the war had collaborated with the Germans while they were living in France. And now it has actually turned into this story about erotic betrayal, which is sort of, (laughs) I mean, I I have to say that I knew that Carrere's relationship with his girlfriend at the time this was all happening, I knew that that was part of the story. But then it takes this turn that's just... Well, I have to say, I read the first, you know, 20 pages of this a few weeks ago because, you know, in my career kick, and I'll definitely get back to it. But I mean, it... It's the book starts in a way that you would think the whole thing is going to be about eroticism. <laughs> the first two or three pages. Yes, but then because no, we get to shifts. the Hungarian POW <laughs> yeah. and then this, you know, going to this sort of Russian hinterland to film the small town and see what's happening in the small town where this Hungarian was kept. You did tell us last week it's a book about a return to life. So, well, so <laughs> it was, it briefly. was, I mean, it's, it's sort of turned uh, and, and he himself says at a certain point that, you know, all these things are happening at once and, you know, he's connecting it in his mind, at least to the Hungarian, to his grandfather, to his mother and to the woman he has a relationship with. But essentially there's a point about midway through the book where it's an extended 8,000 word piece of erotic, I wouldn't say erotic fiction because it's actually a letter that he wrote to his girlfriend with the 
whole the whole project of the letter was he wanted Le Monde, which is where it appeared, <laughs> to agree to publish this letter on a particular day because he wanted her to read it while she was taking a train. And so he planned this whole Whoa. thing so out. So Le Monde published an 8,000-word erotic letter. Right. <laughs> and, and people weren't clear, I think, when it actually did come out, whether or not it was fiction or if it was supposed to be real. But he has this whole thing in his mind. And it's interesting because he returns to this Russian town after finishing with the documentary project about the Hungarian, wanting just to do another film about the town, but not really knowing what he's going to find. So he sort of goes with a very open mind and no mm. sense of what will happen. But at the same time, around that time, he's written this very, and it's it's in the second person, it's addressed to her, very controlling. Like, he's like a control freak when it comes to this whole scenario that he has in mind where she'll read this letter, get turned on, be on the train, <laughs> among all these strangers. Get on a train coming back. And How it's, French. It's, my yeah. dating strategies are really off. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not. I'm learning, because, yeah. you know. <laughs> right. I, I need to read seem, the, yeah, you need to get to the end of the book It doesn't seem first. like the letter is really working out <laughs> as I thought it would. Pamela, do you have a classic story of POWs and erotic betrayal? That I'm reading this week? Yeah. I am not. No. no, I've been a very flighty and promiscuous reader in the last week. I broke things off abruptly with A Perfect Spy because <laughs> I was on, I think, a page 173 and— mm. I asked Dwight Garner, our critic, who has written a lot about Le Carre, if it was going to move on soon from coming of age to Cloak and Daggers. And he said, no, it's going to stay there for a good <laughs> long time. So it it was not fitting the need at the moment. So I then went on, as I mentioned earlier, to read a thriller that our colleague Radhika Jones also read two days before. And she she had read half of it in one night and then said, you know, I'm still reading. So I thought, okay. So we both read that book. Then I started reading three books at once, which I'm still doing. One was Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Other Writings, which is part of a collection. And I'm going to kind of table that and talk about that a bit later. That came out of a conversation we had about ghosts in American literature. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that probably is the first if or one of the first, if not the first, in that vein. And another book that came out of a publisher lunch that I started reading is not coming out until next year. It's called Treating People Well, and it's written by two former White House social secretaries. Um, The subtitle is The Extraordinary Power of Civility at Work and in Life. So this isn't coming out until next year. The lunch in itself was really fun because it was lots of um, (laughs) off-the-record gossip from these two White House secretaries, one of whom worked under Obama and the other who worked under George W. Bush. But, you know, I thought, I I think treating people well is kind of a good thing, so maybe I'll look at that. (laughs) But then in a very different vein, I, for fun, more fun than that, than treating people well, um, began reading um, an old Kate Atkinson book. This is one of her Jackson Brody novels called One Good Turn. And I realized that I think Kate Atkinson writes about annoyance better than anyone else. Like, she is (laughs) so good at getting into the mind of why other people annoy you and make you not treat them well. And I'm just going to, you know, there's so many good examples of this, even just in the beginning of the book, but I want to read one selection. So this is really early on. Gloria liked rules. Rules were good things. Gloria liked rules that said you couldn't speed or park on double yellow lines. Rules that told you not to drop litter or deface buildings. She was sick and tired of hearing people complain about speed cameras and parking wardens as if there was some reason that they should be exempt from them. 
When she was younger, she used to fantasize about sex and love, about keeping chickens and bees, being taller, running through fields with a black and white border collie. Now she daydreamed about being the keeper at the gates, of standing with the ultimate ledger and ticking off the names of the dead as they appeared before her, giving them the nod through or the thumbs down. All those people who parked in bus bays and ran the red light on pedestrian crossings were going to be very sorry when Gloria peered at them over the top of her spectacles and asked them to account for themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So two very different ways of of treating people. Um, I'm not sure which is the better one, but they both make for good reading. Another one I feel more often. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. Kate Atkinson articulates every every annoyed emotion, and she just she writes it better than we ever could. So, all right, thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com/books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening for the New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Mm-hmm.